Welcome to Andrew's Audio Tours of Early Christian Rome, the podcast that helps you see how Rome's most famous sites are connected to the New Testament and to the early church. This series of tours is designed to be used on the ground. Listen along on these tours, and I'll walk you through what you see while you're standing at a particular spot in Rome. These are video podcasts, which means that they have images embedded at certain points. Depending on the device that you're using, you should be able to see some photos on your screen that will help you get the most out of this tour. Santa Potenziana is a site that's a bit obscure, and it's certainly not one of Rome's most visited churches. But it's an ancient place, and it's quite significant in its own way. Here you can examine the origin of Rome's church buildings, and you can also see some of the earliest remains of Christian worship anywhere in the world. Begin your tour by standing outside the church if the weather's pleasant. If it's not, feel free to step just inside the building. Standing outside and looking at this church, what do you notice? Is it the bell tower? The weathered mosaics? The rather plain facade? Those are all there, of course, but I'd like to draw your attention to something even more basic. What you're looking at is a building. Yes, a building. Sounds obvious, right? But it actually wasn't a given that the word church became almost synonymous with a church building. If you've listened to our introductory episode, you might recall that the earliest Christian meetings in Rome did not take place in dedicated church buildings. When Paul wrote his letter to the Roman Christians that appears in our New Testament, Paul did not use the word church to mean a church building. A church for Paul was a group of Christians who met for worship in private houses or perhaps in shops or warehouses. Dedicated church buildings, specifically for Christian worship, only appeared after several hundred years. When they did appear, there were a few different ways that they popped up. First, some church buildings were built on the locations of important events from early Christian history. Someone, often the Emperor Constantine, came along and put up a big church building to mark that spot. For example, St. Peter's Basilica was built to mark the spot where Peter was buried and St. Paul's outside the walls marks the spot where Paul was buried. Second, there were times when someone just wanted to erect a big church building for one reason or another. An example of this is St. Mary Major in Rome, which was founded as a large church building in an area of town that was relatively open at the time, and thus it had room for a new major church. Third, there were occasions when someone had a big building already, and they turned it over to Christians for conversion into a church. An example of this is the Pantheon, which was a large pagan temple that was given to the church in 609 AD. It was a large building that was sitting empty since no one really practiced paganism anymore by that time. So the Pantheon was given to Christians who transformed it into a church. If you were paying attention, you noticed that those first three categories have one thing in common. They are all church buildings that are big. But the building you're outside now is not a large church. The Church of St. Pudenziana belongs to a fourth category of church buildings in Rome. Let's step inside to see how these buildings came to be. Enter the church, if you haven't already, and walk into the nave. 
The nave is the central section of the church, shaped like a large hull. The nave has a series of oddly shaped pier-like structures, and inside each pier is a gray column. Each column sits inside its pier, sort of like a hot dog sits in a hot dog bun. Find any one of those gray columns, stand beside it, and we'll resume our tour. While the structure of this church is ancient, most of the decorative details that we see today are the result of a renovation in 1588. But these gray columns date from the original church building, and they come from the 300s AD, when this church was built. How did these gray columns come to be in this little church? The answer to that question reveals that fourth category of church buildings in Rome. In the case of the first three categories we discussed, church buildings were constructed and then worshipers came to them. In the case of this fourth category, it was the opposite. The worshipers already existed and buildings were then erected to accommodate them. Churches in this fourth category are the churches that were built to house the first Christian communities of Rome. In the earliest days, if you remember, the churches were not meeting in spaces specifically built for them. The first Christians met in houses or in shops or in warehouses, maybe even outside. Later, once Christianity became more mainstream, specific buildings were erected to house these first communities of faith. That's how this fourth category of churches came into existence. They were small buildings that were built specifically for small house churches. We call this fourth category of churches titular churches or title churches. We get the name title church from the Latin word titulus, which means an inscription, a label, or a notice giving information. The titulus was the original Latin name for each Christian church. There are about 30 ancient titles, and all of the titles, except for one, are named after individual people. It was once assumed that these were the names of the people who owned the houses in which each church first met. In this understanding, the title was the plaque attached to the front of the house listing the family that occupied it. And in this way, the churches became known by the name of the homeowner where they started meeting. But increasingly, the names of these titles are understood more broadly in terms of the Roman patronage system. In the patronage system at the time, a wealthy Roman would support less wealthy individuals. The wealthier person was called the patron and the less wealthy individuals were referred to as his clients. It was seen as a win-win for both sides. The clients received the financial support or the favors that they needed from the patron, and the patron was able to call on his clients for political or social support whenever and however he needed. So it's increasingly assumed that these titular names refer to the patrons of the first churches. The first patrons might have paid the priest, supplied the items needed for worship, perhaps even provided a home or rented a space for worship. The priest and the congregation might have understood themselves as clients of the patron. Who was the patron of this church? Well, walk to the back of the church and we'll find out. The rear is the end that's opposite the large dome in the ceiling. You're looking for the painting that you can see on your screen of someone being baptized. Restart this podcast when you're in front of that painting.
you're standing in front of this painting, which was produced by an Italian artist in the 1500s. It depicts a man wearing blue, standing, and using a seashell to pour water over a kneeling man. A seashell is an early Christian symbol of baptism, so this is depicting a baptism. Who are these two men? The man who is standing in blue is Peter, one of the first followers of Jesus, who later came to Rome. The man kneeling is Pudens. The traditional history of this church is that it was built on top of the home of Pudens, who is either a senator himself or a member of the senatorial class. Traditionally, it was said that Pudens welcomed Peter and allowed him to stay in his home. There's also a Pudens mentioned in the New Testament letter of 2 Timothy, in chapter 4, verse 21. This was traditionally believed to be the same Pudens in Rome. It's said that an early church worshipped in Pudens' home on this spot, and it became the Titulus Pudentiana, one of the first house churches of Rome. Eventually, a church was built to mark the location of his home and house the existing congregation. That's the tradition, but when we step outside church tradition, the picture is a little more confusing. It's quite possible that there were originally two different people, a Pudens mentioned in 2 Timothy and a Pudens associated with Peter, and church memory has conflated them into the same person. Archaeologically, the picture is even more confusing. There was a first century private house on this site, and it seems to have been very luxurious, but at some point that home was demolished and a new structure went up on the spot. The most common explanation of the later building is that it was a bathhouse. The present building incorporates some of the remains of that ancient bathhouse. If you look up above the arches in the side walls of the nave, all the brickwork that you see there comes from this ancient bathhouse. All in all, it's hard to believe that a Christian presence existed continually on this site since Peter's time. Maybe a church has always met in this neighborhood since Peter's time, but it became firmly rooted in this particular building in the 300s. Now, let's walk forward to the altar and the dome at the front of the church. Glance to your right as you approach the altar, and through the last archway on the right, you can see ancient flooring from the bathhouse. Restart your tour when you're at the front of the church. I told you to walk toward the dome, but what we're actually here to see is the mosaic in the apse. In Christian architecture, an apse is a half dome above the altar of a church. The Roman Empire used the apse in some of its government buildings, and Christians adopted that form and put an apse at the east end of the church above its altar. The apse in this building is incredibly significant because it contains artwork that reflects the understanding of some of the earliest Christians. The paintings that you see in this apse are some of the earliest surviving Christian artwork in Rome, and indeed some of the earliest surviving Christian artwork from anywhere in the world. Roman art at the time of the first Christians was characterized by its realism and its lifelike qualities. The Romans wanted to see people depicted in a very realistic way. There are many old church buildings in Rome, and many of them would have featured this realistic artwork when they were first built. However, most of the church buildings have been renovated or redecorated at one point or another. This church is no exception. It was built in the 300s, but it was transformed in the 1500s to its present appearance. Almost none of the original Roman artwork has survived. Most of the oldest artwork in Rome today is a style that we'd call Byzantine, which arose in the early medieval period, 
It was very influential around the Mediterranean. Byzantine artwork is very stylized. It's not particularly lifelike. Jesus and the saints have large, staring eyes, stiff poses, with faces staring directly toward the viewer. It all has a supernatural, otherworldly sort of feel. The artwork in this apse is an exception. It was painted by Christians in that Roman style in the late 300s AD. It has come down to us in essentially its original form. It was cut a bit at the bottom and the sides during the 1500s renovation, so parts are missing. But what you see is more or less what Christians saw when this church was first built. If you want to know what they experienced in their worship and what kinds of images were shaping their faith in those days of the earliest church buildings, this is one of the only places in the world that you can experience it. The mosaic is probably meant to represent the heavenly Jerusalem, a Christian concept of heaven. In the center, Christ sits on a jeweled throne while wearing a golden robe. The robe seems to have a purple border, with purple being a color worn by the Roman emperors. So Christ is probably being presented in symbols of authority, which Romans would have recognized. In his left hand, he holds a book which reads, The Lord, Preserver of the Church of Pedenziana. Notice that only Christ wears a halo on his head. All the other figures have a very lifelike quality to them. Christ is also the only face that's turned directly towards you. All the other figures are posed very naturally. To the left of Christ is St. Peter, and to the right of Christ is St. Paul. Each has a female figure behind him. Some say that these are two daughters of Pudens, but perhaps they are allegorical representations of the universal Christian church. Peter was known as a missionary to the Jews, so the woman behind him might represent the Jewish nature of the church. Paul was known as a missionary to Gentiles or to non-Jews, so the woman behind him would represent the Gentile church. Four other apostles stand on each side of Peter and Paul. There were originally five on each side, but two were cut away when the apse was trimmed in the 1500s. All the disciples wear togas, which could only be worn by Roman citizens, which of course none of them were. The Gospels speak of Christ as having 12 disciples, but if you're familiar with the Gospels, you may notice that the math in this mosaic doesn't add up. There were five disciples on either side of Peter and Paul, which makes 10. Add in Peter, and that's 11. Paul was not one of the original disciples of Jesus. He came to faith in Christ much later. So where is that 12th disciple? It should be Judas who betrayed Jesus. But Judas has been left out, with Paul added in his place as the 12th. In the sky above are the symbols of the four evangelists, the four authors of the canonical gospels of the New Testament. From an early period, each gospel writer was identified with one of the four living creatures mentioned in the New Testament book of Revelation in chapter 4, verse 7. Matthew was identified with the man in the belief that he most emphasized Christ's humanity. Mark was linked to the lion because Jesus was believed to be dynamic and authoritative in that gospel. Luke was identified with the ox, a symbol of sacrifice. And John was symbolized by the eagle because his lofty theology was said to soar above the other three gospels. Above them all on a hill stands a jeweled cross. It's quite a transformation from the historical cross on the hill. Jesus was cruelly and harshly executed on a simple wooden cross, but here the cross has been transformed into a glorious symbol of victory. When I look at this mosaic, I'm certainly awed by the connection to some of the first Christians. 
I'm amazed by the ability to stand in a church they stood in and see the Christ that they saw when they worshiped. But I'm also struck by how culturally relevant this artwork is trying to be. We have Jesus dressed in the trappings of a Roman emperor, disciples who are dressed like Roman citizens, and buildings that look architecturally Roman. This is a painting that an average resident of Rome could relate to. It reminds me very much of the Head of Christ painting, which is one of the most famous depictions of Jesus in recent history. It was painted in 1940, and it very quickly became incredibly popular with Christians in the Western world. For a time, practically every Christian home or Christian church in the United States had a copy, and many still do. One reason it was so popular is that it struck a chord with the culture of the time. We think of the 1940s as a time of baseball, apple pie, and wholesome family life. This depiction of Jesus is very clean cut, very wholesome, very European looking, so people quickly grasped onto it. In reality, Jesus almost certainly did not look like the head of Christ painting depicts him. He almost certainly looked more Middle Eastern, and given the living standards and life expectancy of the time, he probably did not look so clean cut and healthy looking. The head of Christ isn't historically accurate, but it is relatable. The same could be said of this mosaic. It's not historically accurate, but it does raise the interesting question of what's worse, to be disinterested in a historically accurate image or to be engaged by a historical image that bends the truth a little bit. That's up for you to decide, but this apps is really trying to present a faith that the Roman Christians can relate to can sympathize with and understand. That's all for now. Gavin Spell is our audio engineer for these tours, and he also performs our music. If you have feedback about these tours, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at andrew at andrewgarnett.org. That's A-N-D-R-E-W at A-N-D-R-E-W-G-A-R-N-E-T-T dot org. I hope that we meet again soon, and for both of our sakes, when we do, I hope that we're standing in the streets of the Eternal City. Mm-hmm.